Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out? We're going to Exodus chapter 7. Now, I warn you today, this is a fairly, this is a somewhat unusual uh, sermon today. I'm going to talk about a, a subject that's somewhat conceptual. It's uh, maybe more of a teaching than I, I, I always do. But it's a subject I can't ignore. If you're new to us today, we are going through the book of Exodus uh, that's our custom here, is normally to be teaching through a book of the Bible. And uh, we're going through Exodus. We have a daily Bible study that's in your bulletins that, will, that goes through verse by verse. It's a um, careful study. And then I preach from those sections of Scripture that we're, going, we're teaching through in the Bible study. Well, I'm coming up now on five chapters of Exodus which have a theme that goes through them. And you'll see these words, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh hardened his heart, or Pharaoh's heart was hardened. You'll see it a couple dozen times coming up in the next five chapters. We're headed into the plagues. I, don't, I hope I can do them kind of all at once. I'm not looking forward to plague by plague myself, but we'll see what the Holy Spirit wants to do with it. Um, but this five chapters is the foundation of a particular doctrine. When you look at the idea of God coming in and hardening a person's heart, it appears that what's going on is God is reaching into this, this king of Egypt's heart and forbidding him from repenting. The God actually stopping him from repenting and, and, and making the right choices. And from that observation, people form a doctrine in which they say God has some people he hardens and some people he gives the gift of faith to. It's called predestination or double predestination where God wants certain people saved and he doesn't want other people saved. You say, does anybody really believe that? Well, some of you know absolutely they do. It's a rather prevalent doctrine. And those who believe this are evangelistic about it. They promote it, they go after it. The picture is that everybody's a sinner, but certain people God gives the gift of faith to. So they get saved. Why does he give certain people faith and not give it to others? No one knows. It's in the mysteries of God, but we know this. It has nothing to do with the person themselves. And so it comes down to eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and you just, God seems to hand out faith to certain ones, because if there was any basis that he gave them faith for, it would be a work. Can't have that. And so it has to be totally arbitrary, at least from our perspective. That's kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, a God that would give the gift of faith and save some from an eternal damnation in hell, but others he would withhold faith from for reasons he, only he knows, but that he intends to get glory out of damning certain people, showing his judgment and his wrath against sin. Hallelujah. 
While they bake in hell, he's going to get glory from it. That's the teaching and that's the doctrine. I don't want you to believe that. I, be, I believe it's a direct assault on the character of God. Either God is loving and just or he is arbitrary and cruel. Because when you think about the realities of hell, that's nothing to laugh about. It's horrible beyond belief. And that God would not do anything he could to save people from an eternity there is cruel. And changes the picture of God that I certainly had come to see when I look at Jesus Christ. Because when you look at Jesus, what do you see? You see a loving, compassionate God who is reaching out to all, even, even his persecutors. Even people who drove nails in him, he would say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, longing for all to come to salvation. And yet from this patch of chapters that I'm about to take you to, people have formed a doctrine. A doctrine that says God hardens some and gives grace to others. Now they couple this with Romans chapter 9. If I had the time, which I don't, I have at least some sense... But I am not going to do that today. But I have, with me even, a total outline of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, in which I could take you through and show you that what I'm, showing, I'm saying today is consistent, totally consistent, with what Paul teaches in those chapters. I don't have that time, so I'm going to just deal here with, with Exodus today. But I want you passionately believing that God longs for all to be saved. That God loves every man, woman, and child and would do and has done everything he can to save us from an eternity of perishing. So that's what we're looking at. Holy Spirit, would you come now? Would you give us eyes to see you're the one who wrote the word and you're the one that can reveal it. And we ask you now to reveal to us your word, to those hearts that are hungry and open. May we see and understand and I pray for the grace, Lord, to speak your word faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage raises a subject which has been debated for centuries. Does the statement that God hardened Pharaoh's heart mean he actually prevents some from repenting and being saved? Throughout the next five chapters, there are repeated references to hardening Pharaoh's heart, along with statements to the effect that Pharaoh then refused to submit to God's demand to release the Hebrew slaves. Taken from one perspective, God appears to be playing a cruel game with Pharaoh while ordering him to release the Israelites and performing stunning miracles, powerful enough to convince any normal person that God was real and meant what he said, at the same time, God miraculously prevented Pharaoh from changing his mind. This view makes Pharaoh a tragic figure in a great cosmic play. He's being given commands and then prevented from obeying them, with the result that his entire nation is forced to endure a series of devastating plagues. Those who assume that this is what is taking place recognize it puts God's character in a bad light. It makes him look cruel and arbitrary. His demands to Pharaoh are insincere because the man is not permitted to say yes. But they justify this understanding by turning to Paul's statements in Romans 9, which again seem to support them. And there the question is asked, 
Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Paul goes on to argue that since God is the one who makes humans, he can use them any way he wants. This, some feel, should silence any complaints about fairness. After all, he's God and can do what he wants to. Today, we'll take a fresh look at the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Because the very character of God is at stake. Is God loving and just, desiring to save every person he can? Or are there some, like Pharaoh, whose heart he hardens? Here we go. Exodus chapter 7. The dialogue I'm picking up is the continuation of a discussion that Moses and God began after Moses went to Pharaoh, presented the demands initially, and Pharaoh responded by making the people of Israel continue to make bricks, but this time not giving them straw. He doubled their workload and began to work them into exhaustion. They got angry at Moses. Moses got angry at God, and thus this conversation began. Here's where we pick it up again. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. By the way, there's a real clear illustration of what a prophet does. God speaks into one ear, and you speak to others. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will, and here's one of the words, harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So some of you may feel a little too old a minister. Get off it. <laughs> You'll notice it used the word. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then I am going to multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Certainly we understand he's telling us why he's going to do this. He's going to cause miracles to take place that the whole nation and the whole region see. But that word harden, it's troubling, isn't it? When you, when you think about hardening someone's heart, what do you think? What happens when you harden somebody's heart? Or someone, let's say it this way. Someone has a hard heart. What's a hard-hearted person? Well, there's somebody who refuses to repent. They're hard-hearted toward God. Or they're hard-hearted toward others. They're loveless and cruel. So does God, would God really come into a human heart and cause that human heart to become rebellious and sin against him? Is that what it's saying? That God would come into this man and squeeze his heart, not allowing him to repent, and causing him to sin and bringing judgment and trouble, death, on his entire nation. If he, I, I, if he would, uh, who needs a devil? But uh, anyway. Do you notice there it says other related passages? Most of those passages there use the word, have the word harden or hardened in them. Not all of them, but they all pertain to this subject of Pharaoh 
and his attitude, his dealings with God. Now, I want you to hear this. Most of these passages include the word harden, using the one English word to translate three distinct, unrelated Hebrew words. Why the word harden is used to translate three distinct, totally unrelated Hebrew words, and only in this section of, Gen of Exodus is this done, because elsewhere the translations will be much true to their meaning. I say there's a theological bent in the original translators, and I think there's a point they were trying to make, but I'm not going to slander them now, later. No, I'm going to leave them alone. All right, sort of. Now, I want to show you, now this is a little tedious, but hang with me, because it, I, I know that you've heard this, or if you haven't, you will, this whole subject. When you get into it, you're going to go, he hardened Pharaoh's heart? What's he doing? I thought God wanted to save people. I, think, I thought God wanted people to repent and turn to him. Why would he do this? So let me show you the three words that are translated. The first word, and you can practice with me if you want, is chazak. Notice the ch. Chazak. Want to try that? Chazak. It means for someone to grow strong or courageous. I think embolden is the best word for it. You give somebody the chutzpah, the guts, the courage to do something. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 21, the Lord uses that word. That's the word that's translated here when it says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will chazak his heart so that he will not let the people go. I will give him courage. I'll give him boldness. You say, well, why would you do that? What does that have to do? All right, go to chapter 14, verse 17. And I'll show you another illustration of that word in a context which shows its meaning. You say, how do you know what the meaning of a Hebrew word is? Well, you look at it in its various usages. And certain verses will particularly explain it. And here's one that really gives you a sense of what this word meant to them. Chapter 14, verse 17. This is after they have come out of Egypt, but they are now on the banks of the Red Sea. They are not on the banks of the Reed Sea. I've been watching TV. I mean, if every Christmas they do an axe job on the Bible or Jesus, uh, I, I guess this is their idea of being spiritual. Uh, and I just saw a thing, and maybe you did. I didn't watch it. I mean, I, I saw where they were going and went, oh man, this again, and turned it off. But they had this shallow pond with reeds in it and they said that the Egyptian army really drowned in that uh, that God didn't part some sea he simply drowned them all in a foot and a half of water which in itself of course is a miracle um, can you imagine them all getting just a minute <clears throat> it's hard to get your, all your armor down under that water all right, they didn't stand on the bank. I mean, they didn't muck through some reed sea. They came to the shore of the Red Sea. And that's where the miracle... Now, as for me, it says, verse 17, Behold, I will harden, chazak, the hearts of the Egyptians, 
so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Well, now picture this. You're an Egyptian sitting there on your little horsey on the banks of this ocean, and that puppy has pulled back, and you have these high walls of churning water on either side with this pathway clear across this distant thing through the water. Now, how many of you would have the courage to ride your horsey into that thing? Now, just picture we're in this, picture of these high walls on either side of us here were water. Churning, bubbling, foaming water being held back by something. And there's this long path of that. How many of you would have pause as you began to ride into that thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's exactly the problem. And so God literally, it says, I'm going to give the Egyptian army the guts the courage, the wherewithal to foolishly march into that thing to put fear aside and go on. And that's what he says he was going to do with Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is about to face ten plagues that are humdingers. I mean, you're going to have darkness over the land. You're going to have hailstones that are killing everything. You're going to have lice and flies and frogs it's, it's, the, the miracle power of God becomes unleashed, and it's, it's awesome. It's intimidating. It's frightening. And any normal person under that kind of miracle power would simply cave in out of fear. And God says, and I'll, I'll get to this in a minute, Pharaoh's not going to repent but if I'm not, if I don't help him, he will cave in out of fear. And since he's not going to repent, I'm going to use this wicked man for my glory. This wicked man's going to help me amp this puppy up, and the whole world's going to know about what's going on. This is going to be a great evangelistic crusade, and Pharaoh's going to be my preacher. I'll tell you a secret. You'll either serve God because you love him, or he'll take a hold of you and you'll serve him in your rebellion. He's God. Now he won't take a hold of your will and force you to believe. But he knows you. And he knows what you're going to do. If you decide to set your jaw against him. Then he may just come and use you. For his glory another way. That's what we're seeing go on with Pharaoh. He says, I'm going to give Pharaoh the guts, the courage, not to cave in out of fear in the middle of this. He's going to glorify me. All right, second word. that's translated harden or hard in this section of, of Exodus is kasha. You want to practice that one? That doesn't have as much in it. Kasha. There you go. It means to be, well, literally hard, but hard in a special way. I'll explain in a minute. Severe or fierce, like you have hard labor. It means it's, hard labor is what? It's labor that is oppressive, that's harsh, that's difficult on someone. And the Lord, and it, uh, let's, let's have a look here. Uh, in seven, chapter, chapter 7, verse 3, the one I used as I read the text, it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart 
that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. He says, I am going to make his heart mean and oppressive. I'm going to allow him to really get worse. How does he do that? Well, he does that by refusing over and over again. I think that's how the oppression is. I'll show you an illustration of that. I won't, well, maybe I will. Deuteronomy you know, 13, chapter 13, verse 15. I make a mistake when I keep skipping scriptures. Here in chapter 13 of Exodus, verse 15, that same word, kasha, is used, but in most of your translations, I find, it's translated correctly here, not the word hardened used at all. It came about, verse 15, when Pharaoh was, what does yours say? Ah, that's the same word. Stubborn about letting us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt. When he was stubborn, it has to do with helping him be stubborn in the face of all of this. Stubborn and not give in to fear. Deuteronomy 2 verse 30. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Old Testament. Verse 30. This has nothing to do with Pharaoh, but listen, it's the same word, and it's referring to another king during the Exodus. It says, But Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land, for the Lord your God had kashah. What it, now here mine says hardened. Does yours say hardened? Yours says stubborn. See, now here they're out of that area so they can translate it correctly. God made stubborn his spirit, or hardened his spirit, and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand. He didn't cave in to the obvious, but stood stubbornly and held together. God's giving Pharaoh the chutzpah not to fold, not to, not to fold in the face of, of, of pressure. And uh, I had one more. Let me remind myself what that is. 1 Kings 12 and verse 4. Oh yeah, Here's, here really shows that oppressive quality. Uh, this has to do with David's grandson, Rehoboam. And here's a statement made about him. It says, your father, about, about Solomon actually, your father made our yoke hard. Uh, now, therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us and we will serve you. Hard in what sense? Hard in that it's oppressive. Hard that it's difficult. Not hard that it's rebellious. It isn't about rebellion against God. It's not about a sinful attitude in a relationship with God at all. It's a quality of character that's going on. And then thirdly, the third word is kabod. And that one would mean unrepentant. There we can use it. It actually means heavy. It's related to the word glory. Kabod, kabod is the glory of God. It's from this root. And here in chapter 9 of, of Exodus, and I, this is my last one of these, so just hold your hat. Chapter 9, verse 34. Moses points out the moral sin that's going on. Because in this case, it is a moral issue. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again. Notice, Moses says he sinned and hardened 
his heart, made it heavy or dull, unrepentant, and his servants. There is the moral responsibility. What does harden mean? As I've pointed out, we often take it to mean hard-hearted toward God. Here, it's, we're using three different words which aren't even discussing that kind of thing, one of which is. Does this passage teach that God prevented Pharaoh from repenting and thereby sparing his nation from the plagues? I don't believe it does at all. Let me make an important distinction. In 2 Corinthians, I won't have you turn there, but 2 Corinthians, Paul makes, it, makes a distinction between Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Remember that? He says, godly sorrow produces what? Who remembers that passage? Godly sorrow leads to repentance. In other words, there are things that happen when, I'm, when I've sinned. A godly sorrow can come over me where I recognize that I have violated God, I have injured others, that I understand the wrongness of what I've just done, and I grieve over it. I change my mind about it. I'm really sorry I did that. In fact, I wouldn't do that again. I have repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Have any of you ever seen people who were uh, being punished for something they've done, who are very tearful, who are indeed sorry they did it, but who you know why they're sorry? They're not sorry that they violated the, a holy God. They're not sorry so much about the injury they've caused someone. They're sorry because they got caught and they're about to suffer. There can be a sorrow that has to do with my self-pity, with my own self-preservation, with my love of myself. I'm sorry of the mess I'm in. I'm sorry that this has affected me this way. I'm very sorry. I wouldn't do it again unless I thought I wouldn't get caught next time. You see the difference? There is godly sorrow and there is worldly sorrow, Paul says. Worldly sorrow. Would God prevent people from godly sorrow? Would he prevent Pharaoh from repenting and being saved. Is that what he did? Did he reach into Pharaoh's heart and say, I don't want you, mister. I don't like you. And squeeze his heart. So the man was not capable of godly sorrow. Is that what the, the text teaches? Because that's what that doctrine teaches. Let me show you the heart of God. And this is extremely important. Turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Ezekiel chapter 18. This whole chapter is just worthy of, of, of constant reading. But listen to this. I'll just pick some verses. Verse 21 through 23. Ezekiel 18, verse 21. But if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. And all his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced. He will live. And then I don't care what version you have. Just read it out loud to me with me. Verse 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Does God enjoy 
damning people. Yes or no? He says he does, has no pleasure in it at all. Now let's watch. He says it again, even more aggressively. Starting there at verse 27. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. In other words, the Lord's saying, I'm delighted when people repent. I don't care what they've done. When they repent, and I see the change in their heart, I take them on the new level. This is a repentant man, and he's no longer a sinner in my eyes. You see that? That's something we all should take to heart. Because he considered and turned away from his transgressions, which he has committed, he shall live. He shall not die. But actually, the, the, the people of Israel didn't like this kind of mercy. They figured once a guy had sinned, you're going to get him for the rest of his life. And so they're complaining and figuring God's too merciful. So, it's, so Ezekiel says here, but the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not right. He's too merciful. He's too nice about this. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Oh, yeah. Is it not your ways that are not right? Lord's ticked off here. Therefore, I'll judge you, O house of Israel, according to his conduct, declares the Lord. Repent and turn away from your transgressions, so that your iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you your transgressions, which you've committed, and make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Now, look at, listen to this. Here we go again. Read with me, verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Read that again. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. The idea that God has certain people he simply would withhold grace from so that he can show his glory by baking them in hell forever. Showing how he treats those who sin against his law. What does that just say? What, what did you just hear? He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I hate it. Will he judge the wicked? Yes. He is a just God. You're not going to get off the hook by some kind of sappy heart in which he doesn't deal with our sin. But does he long for every person to repent and come to him? Would he long for Adolf Hitler to come and repent? Would he long for the Pharaoh to come and repent to him? What if he had? Imagine, and I'm going to show you in one moment, that God actually appealed to Pharaoh personally and directly calling for him to repent before the whole thing got underway. What if Pharaoh dropped to his knees and he said, Yahweh's the living God. I've been a fool. I've been a fool and I've persecuted his people. What am I thinking? Well, it was sure would have changed biblical history. All of a sudden, you probably had this revival in Egypt. Ah, well. Don't kid yourself. The Lord would have loved it. He would have loved it if Pharaoh had repented. But he didn't, and he wasn't going to, and I'll show you how he knew that. Just a couple more verses. I mean, I just nailed Ezekiel, but that passage. But John 3, 16 and through 21, what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that? Who? Again? Whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever 
comes in faith is welcomed, is wanted. That's the heart of our God. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, he describes the heart of God as clearly as he possibly could. He says here, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How many men? Who does he want left out? He desires that all men come to be saved. I really want this in your heart. You've got to get this down. Because there's people teaching you it's not true. There's people teaching you that there's, cast, there's people God doesn't want. And there's something in our nature that thinks that. There's some people so bad, not even God wants them. I'm telling you, that's not true. If they could repent, now they may have seared themselves to the point there's just no repentance possible. But that's a sad thing. It's a grievous thing in the heart of God. And 2 Peter 3 verse 9, which is just a passage you hear from me a lot. I love this passage. Peter says, speaking of the return of Jesus Christ, he says, What's, why is Jesus delaying his return? And they were complaining about that back then. Uh, this is now 2,000 years later. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why is the Lord re delaying his return? He's waiting for every last soul to be saved. And I'm going to tell you something. You may not see it in the, in the communities you live in necessarily, but you're living in one of the most dynamic times in fact, you are living in the most rapid expansion of the church of Jesus Christ in history. Hundreds of thousands of people a day are receiving Christ all over the world. Christianity is by far and away the largest and most rapidly growing religion on this planet. I told you about Cambodia. One church to 640 in five years our problem is we can't find pastors to pastor all the people that will come. They all stand there wanting the Lord and we have no one to teach them. That's the problem. And that's just Cambodia. That's true all over the place. Our biggest problem. Right now, one of our, one of our leaders in, in Sri Lanka is under, under, under uh, military protection because the Buddhist radicals, the Tamil rebels, are trying to kill him. Because we have now thousands of churches through Sri Lanka. And they are our first New Testament churches. They're, they pray for healing. They cast out demons. They are, they are a hot item. And they're, they're reaching people all over. So he is now a target for Buddhist rebels. They hate his guts because he's affecting. He's, he's ministering to the, to the main leaders of the nation. This is just that Sri Lanka. We can just go around the world like this. This is happening. You've got to understand something. The Lord right now is having a ball. People are being gathered into his kingdom at a rate never before. You say, well, I don't see that much. No, you're living in the dark hole of spirituality. I mean, Western Europe's the worst. They're just, they're out of here. And they're a mission field now. 1% to 3% even go to their churches. It's terrible. Western Europe is just awful. 
They're a mission field that we ought to be praying for. We actually are sending missionaries to Western Europe now. And the United States is somewhere in the middle ground and tootling along behind. And you're in the third most unchurched state in the Union. And Western Washington is the dark heart of that. And yet, we had 13 people receive Christ on Christmas Eve. And I don't usually even give an invitation on Christmas Eve. We had 103 people two months ago receive Christ just in that month. I haven't counted up how many we have this month. I don't know. And this is supposedly the resistant heart of of America. And yet people are receiving Christ all over the place. Even here. And churches are being planted all, all over here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What's the Lord waiting for, Peter says? Why is he delay his coming? To harvest in as many people. God doesn't see them as numbers. He doesn't say, how many have I got? 4,553,000. He sees them as Mary and John and Fred and Tom. He knows everyone. He longs for us. Heaven will be poorer if you're not there. He will miss you. Isn't that amazing? God's will is to save every person. His goal is to save as many as possible while not violating an individual's right to choose. Now, here's the key word. Foreknowledge. Would you say that with me? All right. Foreknowledge. God knows what we will freely choose before we choose it. This does not mean our choice was not a free one. Some people argue, well, if God knows what I'm going to do before I do it, then I don't have a choice. That logic completely escapes me. I would argue with it, but I don't understand it. Why? Because God knows what you freely chose. Is he somehow responsible for your choice? I, it's beyond me. If anybody can explain it to me, have at it. I've been years. I've never been able to comprehend why that's even a matter of discussion. This God of ours, this Yahweh, this Jesus Christ, his son, is the I am. He is ever present. To him, all of human history is open in one glance. He sees the future. He sees the past. He sees it all. He knows what you're going to choose tomorrow. He knows what you're going to do. Now, the Bible does not say that on that knowledge, he starts engineering all of human history. He's given the human race freedom, and he's letting us have our ride. Every so often, he comes in and puts the brakes on, or we'll kill ourselves. But he basically is allowing the human race to go through this thing, and he goes through it with us. As history emerges, the Lord is here with us. And as we seek him, he helps us. As we we listen to him, he guides us as we go through history together. What did he know about Pharaoh? You've got to see this. Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. This is what makes all the difference. Chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. The Lord here, we're back where he's speaking to Moses from the burning bush on Mount Sinai. Before anything of this has happened, he says, verse 19, But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion, except by a heavy hand, is literally it. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. What did he know about Pharaoh? He knew what Pharaoh's 
would do. He knew his heart. And he said, that man is so tough, he's not going to repent. We're not going to talk godly sorrow anywhere along here. He considers himself a god. He's delighted to have two million slaves. He's a mean-spirited man that would throw babies into the Nile River. And he's so seared his conscience, there's nothing left for me to appeal to. But I'll still try. But I know this, he's not going to repent. And so I'm going to use that guy for my glory anyway. He's either going to serve me by repenting or he's going to serve me by <laughs> in his rebellion. If he's going to be rebellious, I'm going to make him really rebellious. And he'll glorify me through that. I want to show you one more thing that's, um, well, one more thing here. Turn with me to Exodus 7, verse 8. I'm not going to, I just want you to see the section of scripture I'm in. Well, if God knew that uh, Pharaoh wouldn't repent, then I suppose he wouldn't even bother reaching out to him or asking him to repent. I suppose God sort of knows who's going to get saved and he treats them real nice, but he ignores the other ones, right? Not at all. In fact, that's, that's the most pathetic part of it all. I'm going to show you that God actually reached out and appealed to Pharaoh before the shooting started. When Moses first appeared to begin this whole process of, of, of a contest with Pharaoh, do you remember what the first sign he was to do? The first sign. He's to take that staff and to throw it on the ground and it would become what? It would become a... Uh, I heard some of you say serpent and some of you say snake. There's a, I would have thought it just became a snake. But the word in the Hebrew is an unusual word and it means, well, it actually is used to translate sea monsters in other places. It means it's a strange word. And it also means cobra. Not just your mere old snake, but a cobra. Now, when I saw that, I thought, woo, cobra, yuck. You know, threw the thing down, this big cobra. And then I remembered I had seen in pictures of mummies of pharaohs and daddies that they would have, a uh, little humor went by there real quickly. <laughs> they would have this snake sticking out of their forehead. Did you remember? Have you seen that? And I started flipping through these things on, on old uh, Hebrew things with the pharaohs and drawings of them. They got the little thing on the drawings. But on nobody else, just the pharaohs have this deal sticking out of their forehead. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I was trying to research it and I couldn't find it in time. Someone last night who's done some work says it refers to the God, that Pharaoh is both God and king and that the God of the underworld or the, of life after death is this uh, God of the, of the, of the uh, cobra manifested a cobra. But anyway, it has an essential part of the Pharaoh's power. Now, listen to this. Okay, here we are. We're having this first showdown. Aaron throws the rod on the ground, because Moses is chicken. He's over in the wings. Aaron throws the rod on the ground, and it becomes this big cobra. And then Pharaoh's servants, his, ma his magicians, they throw their rods on the ground, and they become little cobras. And Aaron's big cobra does what? swallows up their little cobras. Now, you say, what's this? Well, if you could go back some thousands of years now, culturally, 
and realize the message that's in all of that in those, in, to those people. Pharaoh's, the spirit of the cobra is a, an essential part of Pharaoh's being, of who he is as the Pharaoh. Here's this symbolic thing going on, and the, 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 the God Yahweh swallows up his cobras. It was a loud and clear statement, the Lord saying, I am the living God. My power far outweighs you. Repent, O man, and submit to me. All right, well, that's one. What's the second one? Do you remember what the second sign was the Lord was to give? He was to take that staff and wave it, or I don't remember, it was to slap the water or wave it over the Nile, and what would happen? It turned to blood. Now think with me. The last couple of pharaohs have had a program going on that every male baby born to the Hebrews was to be done. What was to be done with that child? Thrown into... Oh. So this river has been swallowing babies for, year, for years now. There's been a genocide going on with babies being cast into it. And now as Pharaoh stands there and Moses and Aaron stand here, the rod slaps the water and it belches up the blood of the dead. And the whole river goes red. The whole nation, which has been part of this genocide, stands there with their guilt exposed. As the Lord says, you're murderers. You've murdered my babies. You fill these waters with their bodies. Repent, you murderer. And it said, Pharaoh turned away and had no concern for this. Don't tell me God forbade him. God was calling to him. God's given him personally, as a man, an opportunity to repent of his sins. You say, does he do that? Let me show you one more that's just stunning. Turn with me to John chapter 13. This is the Passover, the Lord's last Passover in the upper room. John chapter 13, verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began to look at one another at a loss to know which one, of which one he was speaking. And there was reclining on Jesus' bosom, the person next to him on the right, one of his disciples. You know who that is? It's John the disciple, the one who wrote this, uh, this, this gospel. So he's, he's next to the Lord, close to him. And so Peter, Simon Peter, gestured to him and said, tell us of whom he's speaking. Whisper to him, ask him who it is. I'm going to get him, I'll throttle a guy. And he was leaning back on Jesus' bosom and said to him, Lord, who is it? And then Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, piece of bread, he took and he dipped it, I guess, in the wine. And he handed it to Judas Iscariot. Now what you need to know is, the dipping of the morsel was a custom. And it said something. It was a gesture of friendship. 
of love. And so the Lord here, now Judas Iscariot is just about to betray the Lord. The next thing he will do is go out into the night and sell him to the high priests. Knowing this, but not, you know, you would have thought when, they, when he said, someone's going to betray me, and they said, who is it, Lord? And he went, this man! You know, and they all go, blah! Throttle the guy right then and there, wouldn't you? Like, no, you don't. But he didn't do that. He didn't give away who it was. Only he took the bread, and he dipped it, and he said, Judas, I love you. It's not too late, brother. I've already said, I know what you're going to do. I know who you, I know it's you, and I know what you're going to do. I love you, Judas. You don't have to do this. You know what Judas said in his heart? He says, yeah, you may love me, but I hate the way you handle money. You waste it. We get all this money in. We could be using it for us. You keep giving it to the poor. It drives me crazy. I'm going to sell you. I'm going to get some money off of you. No, I don't want your bread. And it says then, then look with this, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Now he's demon possessed. And Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. Even Judas Iscariot. Did the Lord know? Of course he knew who. But he still reached out to him. And invited him to repent. Just as the Lord did to Pharaoh. Challenging him. Showing he's a mortal man in the face of the living God. Showing he's a murderer. But offering him an opportunity to repent. God reserves the right to use those who refuse to repent. So that they unwittingly serve him, helping him reach more. He says, I give you a list of scriptures, he's going to do that. God used Pharaoh's rebellion to save more people. If he wouldn't repent, then God would assist him in his rebellion. So that the contest between Yahweh and the gods of the Egyptians would escalate to the point where it would gain international attention. I'm going to just summarize rather quickly these next two points. He knew Pharaoh wouldn't repent. So he said, all right, I'm going to give you the courage to be re really outrageous. If you're not going to turn in your heart against the sin you're about to do, then I'm going to give you the courage and we're going to go for a ride, baby. We're going to have ten plagues that the whole world's going to see. If you're going to be bad, I'm going to make you really bad. And you're going to amp it up until my glory is renowned across this entire nation, all of Egypt will know I'm the true and living God and that you're silly gods. Your little drawings with heads on men of animals. All this junk is, is foolishness and that you're in the face of Yahweh, the living God. You're going to know it. And you know something the message took? I, I, should, I give you the verse right there. It's, it's chapter, I'm not going to take you there, but chapter 12, verse 38 and 48. It says, when Israel left Egypt, there went with them a great multitude, a mixed multitude. Who are they? Well, there's a whole bunch of Egyptians that just aren't that dumb. And when they look at this thing and they say, hey, we know who's got the real God. We're going with you. And when the Israelites left, a multitude went with them. The evangelism worked.
The message worked. They knew who the living God was. And then in, I give you another verse where Moses gives them, if, well, if they're going to be with us, then they've got to get circumcised to take Passover with us. And they become included into the household of Israel. Second thing, the regional tribes and nations heard the report of how Yahweh overwhelmed the Egyptian gods. Boy, when you drown the Egyptian army and you do all of this, the word gets out. And I won't take you there, but it's 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6. 360 years later, when the Philistines have captured the ark of God and hold it, and they're getting plagues as a result of it and want to get rid of it, they go to their own diviners, their own soothsayers, and they say, what do we do to get rid of this thing? We're getting sick having the ark of Israel in our midst. And the soothsayers said, well, first of all, take it back and give presents with it when you go. And then they said, for why would you harden your hearts as Pharaoh did and as Egypt did? Why would you harden your hearts and receive the punishment of Yahweh as Egypt did 360 years later? 300 years later, Philistines know all about this moment and know of the power of the living God. Anybody who wants to know who the real God is, the messages are going to get out. And Pharaoh is going to preach it, whether he likes it or not. All right. God knows beforehand who will and who will not repent. When a person rejects God's offer, their future capacity to hear and respond is reduced. We harden, our, we harden our own hearts. It'll be harder for them to believe the next time. And God can use rebellious people to serve him in spite of themselves. As we go through this chapters, it does not teach that God doesn't want some and wants others. That he reaches down and he takes poor little Pharaoh and plays him like a pawn. But instead you see him taking a mean-spirited, rebellious man who is given an offer to repent. And uses him. And that ought to be a warning to us. We don't serve the Lord willingly. He's not a beyond at all. Taking us by the scruff of the neck. And having us serve him unwillingly. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.